right, we're going to cover, depends how you look at it, we're going to cover either four gifts or two gifts this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been doing a study on the spiritual gifts, mainly found in 1 Corinthians 12. So you can mark your Bibles there this morning. We will be in 1 Corinthians 12, as well as Romans chapter 12. If we have time, we're also going to cover um, a potentially fifth gift, that of mercy. But primarily this morning, what I want to look at is the gift of serving or helps, as it's called in 1 Corinthians, and then look at the gift of leading, ruling, or administrating. We'll cover all of that. These, these two groups, serving and helps, and then leading, administrating, really are, are essential gifts for any church. But they're also gifts that are closely associated with offices of the church. And so it makes them important gifts to know if you have them. Not to say that if you don't have these gifts, you're not ever going to be in leadership within a church. That's not at all what I think this teaches. But leadership in a church will definitely have these gifts, if that makes sense, one or the other. So first, we want to cover um, the gift of serving and helps. Let's read in 1 Corinthians to begin, chapter 12, beginning in verse 27, is where Paul identifies this gift. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So you see the word helping there. If you go over to Romans chapter 12, that is closely paired with the gift of serving, as your Bibles may translate it. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 6, Paul says this, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. So service and helps. I call these gifts the quiet ministry. If you remember in our study, we, we opened up looking at the purpose of gifts, right? And that there's a diversity of gifts. And Paul uses the metaphor of the body to communicate this. How just as in a body, there's many individual members and not every part of your body is the same part. Every part has a function. Every part plays a role. Um, so it is that God has designed the church to be diverse in this sense. He wants a diversity of gifts to fulfill a variety of functions. But Paul also talked about just as in the body, there's the unseemly parts, right, that you cover up. There's the parts that are not noticed. There's the parts of the body that um, are not the flamboyant parts. That's what I call the gifts of service and helping. But just as Paul says that uh, the gifts of, or the body, those, those parts that are unseemly, they play a more important role very often in the body. So it is that the gift of service and helps, I think, plays an essential role in any body. In fact, I think that this gift is probably the most common gift found in a church because service often requires the greatest need within a church. You need lots of people to serve. So let's identify what these words are, the, the term service, 
in, uh, in Romans as well as the term helps. Let's identify them, let's define them, and then look at some biblical examples of these. So the word tra- uh, translated service in Romans 12, 7 there literally is, uh, is diakonia, is the Greek word, and it means serviceable labor. It's what it means. Not a very flattering title, right? Serviceable labor. But it's compassionate love toward the needy within the Christian community as well as within the world. There's lots of that in need. The world is a hurting place. Very often the church is a hurting place. And so someone who can offer serviceable labor to the church, it's not just work that you're after. It's compassionate love that you're after. Uh, we get our word diakonia, um, we get the word deacon from, okay? And so that's why I say this gift is very closely associated with the office of deacon. Deacons literally are those who labor in the dust. That's how we defined deacons when we uh, established our deaconship. They're those who see the needs of service and are willing to labor hard for that. It's not simply work, as I said. Um, there's a certain character that goes along with this gift. And this is why it's a spiritual gift. Anybody can pick up a broom and sweep a floor. Anybody can grab a bag of trash and take it out. That doesn't require any spirituality whatsoever, right? To be a fruit-bearing service-type person, uh, we read in Acts 6 that you must be filled with wisdom, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with faith, Right? The one who's gifted in this way, their service will have a particular fruitfulness about it. So it's not just work that we're talking about. Let me give some examples of of some of the various ways that this word is used in the New Testament. One, it's a very broad word. It's used of any type of service in general. All types of service in general. So really, it's unlimited. When there's a need, there's a server to help right? Someone to serve. It's used of the apostolic office. Uh, Particularly, it's called the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of the word, the ministry of righteousness. That word ministry is the same word, service, okay? And so the apostolic office operated in this way. Paul said this in Ephesians 3, 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So Paul very much saw himself as a servant, a minister in that sense. Even though he was an apostle, held that office, he saw himself as a servant according to God's grace to be able to do that. As we just said, it also speaks of the office of deacon. It's actually what they're called in Acts chapter 6. Servants, those who served the tables. So this is a very broad, broad word. It's used of all types of situations. It's used of both the higher and lower offices of the church, serving tables, all the way to the ministry of the Word. So because it's defined so broadly in Scripture, the application is equally as broad in the ways it can be used. One of my favorite authors, in fact, we have one of his books in our Scattering Seed selection there. Hanley Mole is his name, H.C.G. Mole says this, almost any work other than that of inspired speech or miracle, miracle working may be included within this gift. One of my favorite old commentators, a French commentator named Godet, described the word, this word as this, an activity of a practical nature exerted in action. 
not in word. And what he's trying to point out is that this gift is not one of those speaking gifts. This is not one of those things where you have to get up and be able to teach, to clarify, to exhort, whatever. The practical nature of this gift is exerted in action, not in word. So they're doers, okay? They're the doers, they're the ants, they're the busybodies getting things done. So that's the word service. The word helps, as, as Paul used it in 1 Corinthians 12, literally, it's the Greek word antilepsis, and it literally means the receiving of remuneration. Now, I know you probably don't know what that is, so let's talk about that. You could define this gift this way, and I love this definition. Someone with the gift of helps, or it's, it's identifying a particular niche of service, is one who literally takes on a burden that someone else is carrying, and they make it their own. They see the burden people are carrying in life, in circumstances, in whatever it might be. They have eyes to see it, and they go help. And they don't just help, they make that burden their own burden, right? Why is that important? Well, let me illustrate this way. Very often, when we're helping the poor, we're not really helping the poor. I've had our leadership, Bo at least, um, and some others read a book called When Helping Hurts. And what the idea is, sometimes what we think is helping people is not really helping them. We do this with the homeless very often. We just give them money, give them money, give them money, give them money. And it's not helping them at all. You're not teaching them any life skills. You might just be feeding a habit, so on and so forth. The one with the gift of helps actually takes the burden and makes it theirs. They don't give from a distance. They don't aid in something like that. They make the help by trying to ease the burden by carrying it themselves. What a beautiful word. This is how it's used in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Listen to this. Paul writes to the elders at Ephesus as he's leaving them and knows he'll never see them again. He says, In all things, I have shown you that by working hard, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's the idea. Paul captures it. We must work hard to help the weak. So the ones with this gift have special... Um, they have eyes to see that need, right? Many people come to a church and... and they can attend a body, they can fellowship, and they never pick up or perceive on these kind of needs. The person with this gift, they see it immediately. And they don't have to wait to be asked, hey, can you help out here? You, you usually find them already helping out because they've perceived it. Okay? They serve, they help. So while these, these are two different words here, I'm not sure that it's two different gifts. I think what the gift of helps is, or the word helps is identifying is a particular Intense ministry to helping those who are poor, helping those who are weak, whether weak in body, weak in faith, whatever it might be. You go to them, you strengthen them, you help them. So the word help is very particular in that sense. Let's look at some biblical examples of, of how this is used in, in um, Scripture. And it actually kind of blew up on me because you see this gift everywhere. One of my favorite ones is found in the book of Philippians, if you want to turn there. You guys know, if you've been in the Scriptures for a while, that the Apostle Paul, in my opinion, was, was the greatest Christian outside of Jesus that ever lived. But it's equally clear that Paul did not do it alone. He had a lot of people 
helping him. One of those men was a man named Epaphroditus. In Philippians 2, Paul mentions how this man helped him. Beginning in verse 25, Philippians 2.25, Paul wrote, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister, there's the word, to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. This man, Epaphroditus, labored himself nearly to death. That's the idea. And it was so grievous to Paul at the thought of losing Epaphroditus, he was filled with anxiety about it. This man was a helper to Paul. He was one of his trusted ministers, trusted soldiers. He would fight the battles with Paul. He would serve Paul's needs behind the scenes. Paul could not have been nearly as effective as he was in ministry if it were not for helpers like Epaphroditus but you don't ever see Epaphroditus in the limelight. You see Paul, right? That's why this gift is behind the scenes, the quiet gift. Another such pair, couple, that helped Paul was Priscilla and Aquila. You remember them from the book of Acts, the husband and wife tag team duo. I would have liked to have met them. Both the husband and wife were helpers. They were fellow ministers with Paul. They went to Corinth. They went to Rome. In fact, Paul mentions them in Romans 16, 3 and 4 about how they are ministering to the church there. They were one of those trusted worker couples that Paul could say, hey, we've established this church. They need help. Would you guys be willing to go? We're there, Paul. We're on it. That's the kind of couple they were. Every pastor needs people like this, right? The pastor and the leadership team just cannot get their hands on all the ministry and do it. And they need people like Epaphroditus, Priscilla and Aquila, deacons to help in these ways. The greatest example, however, obviously is Jesus. This is an enormous aspect of who Jesus was. I want to read a lot of scriptures with this. Turn to the Old Testament with me. I want you to see how this gift works in a way that you may not always think of it as a help ministry. Turn to Isaiah 53. We're going to read verses 4 through 8. You guys know this chapter, one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, in my opinion. Prophecy of the Suffering Servant, where it describes in graphic detail who this coming Messiah would be. But notice how in the verses we're going to read, verses 4-8, through how it describes Jesus as taking upon Himself something that you were trying to carry. Okay? Beginning in verse 4, Surely... He has borne our griefs, and He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. You see how Jesus in that passage is constant is constantly said of Him what? He carried our sorrows. He bore our sin. He took our chastisement. That's the picture of helps. The one who helps wants to take what you're trying to shoulder and make it theirs. What a beautiful picture this gift truly is. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but what? But to serve. There's the gift. That verse, for one who's gifted in this way, whose passion is to be a server, a helper, one who takes off the load of someone, that verse should be emblazoned on your mind. I've come not to be served, but to serve. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 5, verse 30, I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That's the helper's motto. I'm not seeking to serve myself. I'm not seeking to do my own thing. I'm not coming to church so that I can be filled up. I want to come to church so that I can fill someone else up. So I can help someone else. They are very otherly minded. They take very literally Philippians chapter 2. Hey, don't consider yourself as most important, but consider everyone else. Right? That's the mindset. Let's just go there to Philippians chapter 2. If you're still, you may still be there. Beginning in verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." have this mind among you, which was in Christ. People with this gift, what they will do to a church is revolutionize how the church treats and cares for each other. It's an inspiring type gift. When you see someone serving selflessly over and over and over, and you watch that person give of themselves, give of their time, give of their emotions, give of their resources so that they may help you, all that does is inspire the church. You, you have a, a living picture of who Jesus is constantly in your church. Do you see that? So that's why this gift is so important. It's less honored, but I think it makes it all the more important. I had Mark read out of John chapter 13, the example Jesus gave of washing the disciples' feet, right? How much more humble a picture can you get than the Lord of glory stooping down and taking the position of a slave and washing feet? That's what that job was reserved for in that day. So, this is a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful gift. One that I pray we have many, many people, and I've already recognized this gift in lots of people. Uh, when you see things being done and you don't have to ask about it, you know there's gifted people with this, with this gift in the church. Things just get done and you never even brought it up. I'll give you an example this morning. I got here early this morning. And uh, my daughter Natalie and I were starting to make the coffee, and we noticed that the two coffee pots were missing. I thought, okay, we're going to have to cancel church. (laughs) 
My hope, though, in the back of my mind was, well, hopefully someone just took him home and washed him. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. A serving couple walks into church with the bright, clean coffee pots in hand. Didn't have to ask. May, may seem small to you, certainly isn't to me. Things need to be done. They notice it needs to be done. They did it without asking. That's service. That helps. I read of one pastor who spoke of a man in his church. Every Monday morning, there's a women's prayer group who met and prayed at the church. And it was an elderly group, so this man would bring his wife, drop his wife off at the prayer group. And so for the next hour, he could have gone shopping at Lowe's or he could have uh, you know, done whatever he wanted to do, free time. But this man had the gift of service, had the gift of help. So instead of just spending the time on himself, what he did was he walked the entire campus of the church, which was a large church, and picked up trash from the Sunday services. He just cleaned. Saved the church money, saved the pastoral staff from having to do it. That was something he could do, something he wanted to do, and he did it. The gift of helps. So the encouragement um, for those with this gift. One, is that if you have this gift, very often the Lord uses you, I think, to start new ministry. Because people with the gift of helps have a particular eye of seeing needs. Or sometimes that vision lacks elsewhere, right? They have a way of, of seeing, hey, I think so-and-so is hurting. Or, hey, I see this particular need in our community. And so people with this gift very often inspire new ministry to start. And then people with the gift of leadership, like we're talking about, catch that vision and say, you know what, let's get something together and go for it. And they organize, they lead, they mobilize. So people with this gift often start new ministries. We need people who are servants and helpers. If you have something on your heart and mind, if you have a desire, if you see a need, start doing something about it. Start speaking about it. Start operating so that the rest of the church can see and come on board. You don't always have to wait around or be sanctioned by leadership. If you see something, go for it. That's what helpers do. Um, Don't serve... And this is maybe more general encouragement for the church. I don't think people who truly have this gift ever serve for recognition. But Jesus warns us in Matthew 6.1, don't practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Right? Because then your reward is the praise of men rather than God. Don't practice your righteousness before men just to be seen. Some people want this gift because they want to be seen as something Great of a servant, they recognize the virtue of service, but they practice their righteousness before men. Don't do that. In fact, I think people with this gift have tremendous guilt when you even bring up something they've done. Right? If, if they're at all going to be recognized or mentioned, they kind of shrink back into the shadows and are like, no, don't say anything. That's how you know someone's truly gifted in this way. They don't want recognition. They just want to help. The last thing, in in the first meeting I had with our deacons, I said this to them. It's easy to serve in the strength of your flesh, right? As I said earlier, anyone can pick up a broom and do something. Anyone can take out trash. It's easy to serve in the strength of your flesh, but it won't be spiritually fruitful. People who operate in this gift, who are empowered by grace to do it, serve in a way that bears a lot of spiritual fruit, not just getting a task done. This gift isn't about simply finishing a task. It's not being task-orientated. It's focused on the benefit of blessing 
someone or something else, right? There's an intangible aspect to your help and service. So that's the gift of service and helps. Certainly, if anyone is going to be a deacon in our church, they need to have this gift. When we evaluate deacon candidates, the first thing that we look for is, are they serving already? They kind of identify themselves, these people, right? They're the ones who are already doing something, jumping in and getting busy. And those are the ones that we take as, okay, Lord, you're raising them up to this office of deaconship. Let's look at the next gift, that of leading and administrating. Once again, there's two different words that Paul uses. But it's interesting to me, before we get into these words, that I teach worldview at the Christian school. And right now we're actually in this section that in society, God's instituted three different institutions. Family, church, and state. All those are God-ordained institutions to help govern society. And each one of those three, family, church, and state, have a structure that God desires. Now, the the structure of government is not as uh, explicit in Scripture. There's general principles we find. In fact, the founders of our own republic took some of these explicit principles from Scripture and formed the government we have, but it's not stated in Scripture, you must be this. Um, but, but there is a specific structure for the family and the church that God outlines, right? So, whatever the case, God seems to like structure. In the very opening chapters of Genesis, for instance, everything was formless and void, right? After God spoke everything into existence, everything is formless and void, and God brings order to the created universe. He calls it the cosmos, right? Cosmos literally means order. The very first thing we see God doing is bringing order to things. Uh, we get our word cosmetics from this. So, so ladies and maybe gentlemen this morning, what do you do? You put on your makeup. You're bringing yourself into order. Um, I have to put on some makeup as well, and it doesn't do much for me. But that's what cosmetics is. You're putting things in order. Maybe I shouldn't have gone there. I don't know. (laughs) Jill's shaking her head. (laughs) We know from 1 Corinthians 14 as well that that with the gift of of tongues that we were looking at a few weeks ago, Paul says that very point, right? If everyone is is in the church speaking in tongues in different languages, it's going to be crazy and chaotic. That's not God. He's not a God of chaos and confusion, but a God of peace and order, right? God likes order. He's told the family how it's supposed to be structured. He's told the church how it's supposed to be structured, and he's given basic principles on how to structure the government. So leadership or ruling is one of those gifts um, closely associated with the office of elder or apostle. Uh, I don't believe there are apostles today, but when there were apostles. Here's how I'm going to define, just just for our sake of understanding leadership, as the ability to see a biblical objective, and I'm talking about biblical leadership here, okay? There's all obviously worldly definitions of leadership. I'm talking about biblical leadership. What is biblical leadership? It's, it's the ability to see a biblical objective, to formalize it, mobilize a group of people, and then meet that objective, right? They see something, they see a place we need to go, spiritually speaking, they see an issue in the church that's going on, they perceive it, they formalize it, 
They can identify it, and then they bring structure on how to, to deal with that. Okay? Now, it can be a very broad range of issues. It can be anything from spiritual heart issues to coming up with a plan on future buildings like we're doing now. Okay? It's very broad. It's not necessarily sitting in a position of authority. There's lots of people who are pastors who probably shouldn't be pastors. There's lots of people who are CEOs who probably shouldn't be CEOs, right? It's not the fact that you're in a position of authority that makes you a leader. In fact, Connor, we were talking this morning about leadership, and uh, I think that very often people who, are, who don't have the title of authority are actually better leaders because authority and leadership is not always the same thing. Like, I see these guys, you don't have the, the officer title, but I think you guys are great leaders, right? They can mobilize things. doesn't mean officers are bad leaders. They might be great leaders. I'm just making the point. Authority and leadership is not always the same thing. Nor is this gift simply being an organizer, someone who's organized, okay? Um, certainly, organization helps, and I think that's an aspect of leadership, but someone who's an organizer may not be a leader either. So this gift is the ability to make good biblical decisions to determine and lead in what direction should be taken. Um, let's read the gifts there. Go to, if you got Romans open and 1 Corinthians 12 open. Romans chapter 12, verse 8. Paul says this, The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes... In his generosity, then he identifies it, the one who leads or rules, your Bible may say, with zeal. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul actually calls it the gift of administrating. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God's appointed first in the church apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating. So two different words again are used, and they point out, I think, two different aspects of what leadership or leading is, biblically. First is management, ruling, okay? Administrating, in 1 Corinthians 12, has the idea of mobilizing, mobilization, it literally means, this word administrating, literally means to steer a ship. Okay, It was used of pilots, as they were called, not of airplanes, but of boats. Those who took the rudder, charted the course, and brought the ship to its intended destination. That's leading. You know how to steer the ship. You know where to go, and you know how to get there, and you bring people there safely. That's leading. So an example of that actual usage is found in Revelation chapter 18, verse 17. It says this, All the shipmasters and seafaring men, the sailors and those whose trade is on the sea, stood afar off as they watched Babylon's judgment, right? But that's, that's the word there, literally, of that context. The shipmasters is this word administrators, okay? We actually get our English word from this Greek word, uh, we get the English word cybernetics. If you guys have studied that science, cybernetics is the science of uh, how the brain rules over and causes the body to do certain things. That's what the science of cybernetics is from. So in that sense, cybernetics is, is very literally this idea of administrating and ruling. Steers the body. How does the mind do that? 
In the Old Testament, administrating scene in a lot of places, the very term Israel, the name Israel, literally means governed by God. That's what their name meant. Israel started off as a theocracy. God was their ruler, right? Directly. They kind of rejected that and asked for a king. We want to be like the rest of the nations. So God gave them Saul. But even then, the king, whoever it would be, was to be under God's law as his rule. Moses, we see in the Old Testament, took 70 elders, leaders of the people, and set them over the people to handle all the cases. There was a structure to the priesthood. We see this. Aaron and his sons were only to be the priests. And not only that, the priests were sectioned off. Hey, this group of Levites, you're to do this temple service. This group, you're to do this temple service. This group, you're to do that temple. That's administrating. That's steering the ship. That's mobilizing. Okay. In fact, the more and more you look in the Old Testament, you actually see God bringing order in a lot of different ways. Very often, He'll remove His protective hand so that chaos ensues. And then what's He do? Brings order back together. Brings people back under Him. Um, in the New Testament, we see this everywhere too. We just read Romans. We just read 1 Corinthians 12. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 4 that God has given to the church first apostles, then prophets, then pastors, or evangelists, then pastors, teachers, right? God has given offices. Jesus has given offices to the church. Why? To lead the church. God likes order. He likes structure. He likes leading. Makes sense that this would be one of the spiritual gifts that he gives people to do that. Uh, we read in Titus, Paul sends Titus to the island of Crete to establish elders at every church on that island, right? Paul saw this need. Hey, all these people came to faith in Christ. What do they need? They need leadership. Titus, go here to all these churches. Set it up. Get it going. They need biblical leadership. In fact, Paul even goes so far as we've taught through this at Waypoint, qualifications for who leaders to be. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we've gone through that. As well as Titus chapter 1. There's qualifications for leaders. Tremendous character. So there's really a tremendous amount of biblical material about leadership. There's also a tremendous amount of biblical literature about bad leadership. Right? One of the greatest examples of bad leadership was Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Moses kept telling Pharaoh, hey, God wants his people to go worship him. Let the people go. Let the people go. What did Pharaoh do? Harden his heart. Harden his heart. He was a stubborn leader. And consequently, Pharaoh brought tremendous destruction on his own people because of bad leadership. In fact, the whole Old Testament, really, the books of Samuel and Kings, Chronicles, is all about failed kings. How these kings rebelled against God. They worshipped the idols, the astras, all these false gods. And what did God do? He brought destruction upon Israel. They were deported. It's really a commentary on what bad leadership does. Rebels against God and doesn't listen to Him. Consequently, the people suffered under bad leadership in the Old Testament. They were led astray. It's exactly what Isaiah chapter 9, verse 16 says. Those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. There's tremendous consequences biblically for bad leaders. There's also, however, very many people to study if you want to see what good leadership is like. I think my favorite in the Old Testament is Nehemiah. If you read the book of Nehemiah, that's one of the best books on leadership that you could ever see. Study that man's life. How he went about mobilizing, planning, 
energizing the people to the work and bringing them closer to God. Other examples are Moses, Daniel, Paul, James in the early church. All these men were tremendous leaders. They were able to steer the ship, lead the people to where they needed to go. So the Scripture talks about how it is that a leader is supposed to lead, what this means. One, they're supposed to, to lead in the fear of God. If you want to go to the Old Testament with me, I want you to see this Scripture. It's 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. We'll read together. Just begin in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He, God, dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David's last words opens up with a statement on leadership. When one rules God's people in the fear of the Lord, there's a promise associated with it. God will be there with them. Right? There's a blessing to biblical leadership. You fear the Lord. They're also to rule or lead diligently. Proverbs 12.24 says this, that the hand of the diligent will rule. In fact, a lot of people think this is where Paul gets his statement in Romans 12.8. If you're going to lead, do it with diligence. They think Paul got that principle directly out of Proverbs 12.24. The hand of the diligent will rule. And it's in contrast to those who are lazy, who are slacking in leading. Okay? Paul says, he who leads, leads with diligence. That word diligence means you lead with speed, you lead with haste, you lead with eagerness, earnestness. If you're called to that position, understand the the enormity of the task and do it with energy. Do it with zeal. Right? Don't put your hound to that plow and look back, as Jesus said. In fact, if you want to turn to Acts 20, you get this sense from what Paul said to the leaders at Ephesus. His last words to them He's basically pointing out the diligence needed to lead. In Acts chapter 20, we'll read it together. We'll read verses 26 through uh, 31. So this is Paul's last words to the leaders at Ephesus. Therefore I testify you to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now listen to the diligence involved here, the eagerness. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. You see that quality of diligence in Paul's words, don't you? 
Be on the alert. Leadership cannot fail there. So if you're going to lead, lead with diligence. Otherwise, don't get in that position. But how badly we need men uh, and women in, in aspects of ministry who are going to lead in this way with diligence. Third, their uh, leaders are to lead by the Word of God. Hebrews 13.7 actually says that. The leadership is to teach and speak the Word of God to the people. If you remember in our study, what distinguishes an elder from a deacon was that one gift of teaching. A, a leader, an elder, must be able to explain the Word of God, teach the Word of God to the people. So here's a question. Certainly people who are going to be pastors or elders in a church need to be gifted in this way. But does leadership end there? In other words, do only the pastors and elders have this gift of leadership? Certainly not. Certainly not. There are many, in fact, within the body who have this gift and need to operate in it. And I'm going to throw Mallory under the bus because I told her I would. Um, Mallory Rozier, I think, is one of the most gifted leaders in our church. She has often come to Bo and Dwayne and I with insight Mallory Rozier is one of the best leaders, I think, in our church because she often sees things that can be done. She formalizes it. She brings structure and insight into how to get from here to there. And it has been helpful to us over and over and over again. She's tremendous. So, no, this gift is not solely found within the office of leadership. It should be operating at every level of the church. There's always need for people to lead in different aspects of the ministry. The church itself is a dynamic organism. And you just wouldn't expect, in fact, I think it would be quite dangerous for all the leadership to be concentrated at the top, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't think very highly of governments that are like that. In fact, our framers of our government distributed power for a very good intentional reason, right? So, in the end, someone does have to lead. Um, so we need people to be steering the ship with certain ministries, especially where the elders and deacons cannot. If our load is too much, others need to step up and lead. Some need to organize various ministries that the Lord might be raising up. In fact, what I see is we have helpers busy with ministry, right? They are very perceptive as far as needs. They start doing, and then what should leadership come along and do? How can we help you? How can we aid you? How can we help get this going? Right? Leadership doesn't have to determine everything. They often see where people are operating spiritually and it's fruitful and they help bring structure to it. They help mobilize and get it going. I spoke with one pastor in Virginia where my brother-in-law and sister go to church. The pastor was friends of ours when he was in Albuquerque. And they have just a, a tremendous church. It's a huge church, 6,000 people. But people are intimate with each other. They know each other. They love each other. There's just, it was an awesome church. And so when I got back home after visiting them, I called Jesse was his name and, and just interviewed him and asked him questions. Hey, how are you guys getting so much involvement? What's going on? And he says, well, we, we in leadership are very intentional about not trying to lord over everything. If somebody comes to us and says, hey, the Lord's put this on my heart to do, we say, great. How can we help you? What do you need? Then they announce it to the church and ask, hey, does anybody else have this on their heart? So-and-so wants to start a ministry doing this. Anybody else there? People will raise their hand, direct them to them, get it going. 
And the ministry flourishes, right? You don't have to be a puppet master in leadership. That's not the biblical idea. So often how churches are run, unfortunately. Paul said very clearly in Ephesians 4 that God gave those offices to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to do all the ministry themselves. My job as a pastor is how can I equip you to do that work of ministry? That's leadership. So we need many biblical leaders. We need many helpers and servants so that fruit, uh, fruitful ministry may thrive. I think I will stop there. I have the gift of mercy, but um, we might be here till 2 o'clock. <laughs> and I don't really want to go fast through that gift. It's a beautiful gift. The heart of God. With that, let's close in prayer. I'll invite the worship team back up. Father, thank you so much uh, for these two beautiful gifts, Father, and how you give so many people, even at Waypoint, a heart of service to be help, to come alongside others who are carrying a load and want to carry it for them. Father, this, this gift is so beautiful. I see... I see the very heart and character of Christ in it, who Himself came to serve and did serve. In fact, John says there were so many things that the Lord Jesus did that if all of them were written down, even the books in the entire world could not contain it. That's how much Jesus served. He gave of Himself constantly. As one pastor said, His whole life was one long martyrdom. He gave and He gave and He gave and He gave. Father, I pray that You spiritually equip many people in our church to be helpers, to be servants. Father, I pray also that You equip many people in our church to be well-equipped leaders. People who know how to, how to lead, how to mobilize, how to see things that need to be done, and how to get there in a biblical way, not just a pragmatic way. Father's leadership is so often closely associated with wisdom. So we don't just want to get a job done, we want to do it in a way that's honoring and right. So Father, raise up leaders. I pray that Waypoint becomes a church that recognizes the future leaders in the church and we start training, we start equipping, start giving responsibilities to them to lead so that we can be reproducing discipling people. Thank you for the ways you have equipped Waypoint. Lord, I pray that you give those who are spiritually gifted, that, that you give them insight into what their gift is here and how they can start using it. Father, if there's not ways that they see, Father, that you raise up new ministry in which they can exercise their gifts, that we would recognize that and simply see how we can help. Father, thank you for the many who are here, Father, for all those who are sick or, or gone, we, we want to pray for them, Lord. I know that's going around really bad right now. Um, give them rest. Help their bodies heal and rest. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.